So we are in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, and uh, we're going to do things just a little bit. We're, so, we're, so we're finishing chapter 10 today, and then we're going to move on to chapter 11 of Hebrews, which is that great chapter just talking about faith and uh, of, of Old Testament uh, individuals and just a, an exhortation for, uh, for our faith as well. Um, so today we're going to finish out chapter 10. Um, and one of the things that I'm going to do, I'm going to do things a little bit differently this morning. Typically what I do is I try to explain the text as I go through the sermon. Uh, but this morning what I thought would be better is that if I explain all of the text up front and just kind of give you the context of what the author was trying to do in the whole of the passage, and then I'm going to go through just three honestly very brief applications of the text um, so that uh, we can understand how to include this in our life. And so Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 36, and this is what the author of Hebrews writes. Remember the earlier days when, after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions." Because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this, uh, these verses in particular that encourage us, that uh, motivate us, that give us um, a, a sense of, of um, a sense of peace about the Christian life, um, Father, and also this uh, exhortation to living out our faith uh, with a zeal, with a, with an excitement, with an expectation, uh, so that we might be individuals that, uh, that do, in fact, endure uh, by your power and by your, according to your will and uh, receive that promise that you made uh, to us. Lord, we thank you and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So as I said, last week was a... That's a difficult passage. Let, let me just read uh, part of this just real quick. Um, here, just so that you can, uh, so that we're on the same footing here. He says, starting in verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and who has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people and then he says this line, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now that verse alone, now I don't know if I'm a masochist or what, but I love that verse. I love that verse right there. It is now, why is that? It's not because I loved the, loved the idea of God judging people and pouring out his wrath on individuals. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that our God is absolutely magnificent, 
and superior to all other things. And I know that when I come in contact or uh, come face to face with an individual that I greatly respect, greatly respect or revere, and in some ways, and I don't want to say fear is in like bodily harm, but that you're in fear of disrespecting them. Like when I see Paul Grimes come to me, I'm all smiles. Hi, Paul. I'm not worried about bodily harm, but I know the possibility is there, okay? Because <laughs> he's massive. Anyway, the point being is when we respect, there is that sense of just this sense of awe, and that's what I get from this line, that one verse. That one verse that is just this, brings out this sense of awe of who our God is, right? I posted this verse after I preached that message, and so many of you all had the context uh, in mind when you saw that one line on Facebook, right? And you commented accordingly. One individual who I love dearly, um, who I grew up with her, with her sons, and uh, she's just a very special person, did not have the privilege of being in that message. And so when she saw that line, she had a different comment about that. <laughs> she said, well, I just find great peace in the hands of God. And I was like, well, I'm glad you do. That's not the point of that, of that verse right there, right? And so context really is everything. And that's why I bring this up this morning is because now what the author is doing is he's following that text where he really is provoking a warning to individuals, warning them, please, please do not fall and continue in deliberate sin because whatever Moses and his people suffered, your fate is going to be much greater because it's not like there's going to be another high priest that's going in to the Holy of Holies making sacrifice on your behalf next year. Christ's sacrifice was final. And that when we go on deliberately sinning, oh, I'm just going, I'm going to go ahead and do this sin because I want to do it, but I know that Christ will save me. Folks, we never want to presume that. We never want to live our lives taking for granted Jesus' sacrifice. And that's exactly what that is. When we commit sin, knowing that we are committing sin deliberately, but we are banking on Jesus' blood covering that sin that we are deliberately uh, transgressing, folks, that is taking for granted the work of Jesus in our lives. We presume too much, and we may presuming may be presuming too much our position with Christ. And so we, we, we dare not do that. But following that warning, he then exhorts the individuals to greater faithfulness. And that's where we are this morning. So this is a, this is a, a, a few verses that are encouraging encouraging the people to continue on following Christ as they once did. And that's where we are this morning. So this entire letter, all of Hebrews, all right, is number one, very pastoral. The author is writing, and we don't know who the author is for sure, but we do know that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, so we know that it's God's Word. We don't know the exact author, but we do know that he is taking a pastoral perspective throughout this entire letter. And so there are warnings, and then there are exhortations. If I could be so blunt to say it this way, if you are in the care of a pastor who is always warning you and who is always sharing hellfire and brimstone, 
But there's never an exhortation or motivation or encouragement just to love the Lord and find joy in your life, but it's always doom and gloom. Folks, that's not going to help us grow in Christ. But at the same time, if you're under the care of a pastor, of an elder, who is constantly just lifting it up and it's always light and it's always soft and there's never a mention of the wrath of God and the penalty of sin, you are in just as great a danger, if not more. There has to be that compliment. And that's why I say this author is very pastoral. This letter is full of encouragement and an exhortation to the people to follow Christ and to find joy in the Christian life. But then likewise, there is also these dire warnings that you will fall away. So this morning, we're following one of these dire warnings with this exhortation to find the joy, to find the confidence, and to maintain the confidence that you once had. In fact, this reminds me of one of the letters uh, in Revelation to the church. Find, discover your first love. I believe it was to the church of Ephesus, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And I could be wrong with that. I can't remember right off the hand. But it's this idea of remember your first love. And so this entire letter is an exhortation to, number one, exalt Christ and then endure the Christian life. It comes on the heels of this warning passage, and this text this morning acknowledges the fact, I believe, just by the way it's written, it's not explicitly, it's indirectly, acknowledges the fact that there are hills and there are valleys in the Christian life. And you know exactly what I mean by that. There are moments in the Christian life when we are filled with joy, energy, zeal for the Lord, we don't want to, st- where is the next place I can serve? Where is the next place I can pray with somebody? Who's the next person I can share the gospel with? Um, and we just have this zeal. But then at the same time, we, ha- we hit these valleys where we just say, I don't know if I can keep doing this. I don't know if I can keep, this is just too difficult. And we're going to talk about that this morning. So let's just walk through this real quick, and then we're going to hit these three applications. So the author says, remember the early days. So these early days, these would be the days when they first became Christians. So remember the early days when you first became a Christian. And then, because he says, after you have been enlightened, that's a code word for saying that you have been converted, all right? The Holy Spirit has filled you. You have now been converted from paganism or from lostness to life. From death to life, you've been converted. You've been enlightened. And then he says, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So after the enlightenment came sufferings. Now, I'm going to tell you personally, when I came to Christ, I did not endure great sufferings, okay? I did not endure that. These individuals did. Many of them did. In fact, it says, sometimes you are publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times, you were companions of those who were treated that way. So either these individuals were taunted and were mocked for their faith, or they were with those who were. They were with those who were. For you sympathized. Now, here's the cause of it. You sympathized with prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions 
So the next thing that happens is, is that, so they are being taunted, they are being mocked for their faith, or they are with people who are having that happen. And then they are also serving with joy, I might add, individuals who've been imprisoned likely for their faith. I believe that's the right context here. All right, these are not just criminals who are prone to criminal activity. It could be an early prison ministry. I don't know that. But likely, these are individuals who have been imprisoned for their faith, yet they served them while they were in their faith. And likewise, these new Christians had their stuff taken from them. It was confiscated. So early in, in the church, it was very common for when individuals converted from Judaism or from, uh, from paganism to Christianity that the culture, that that would not be sustained in the culture. And so individuals in their society would ridicule them, would, uh, would castigate them, they would criminalize. And we don't see that, well, let me be clear, we used to not see that as common in the United States. We are starting to see this now. We are starting to see this now. But for sure, we are seeing this abroad. That our brothers and sisters, and I've said this numerous times, but it is so important for us to, in our Americanized uh, society that we're in, it is important for us to realize that we have brothers and sisters overseas that when they come up from the baptismal waters, they have figuratively and quite possibly literally crosshairs on their head. That it is a criminal act. Right now in China, there are churches that are being burnt to the ground because they are preaching an orthodox Christianity that is not tied to nationalism. That's not tied to nationalism. And that's where I see the United States, I, I, I hopefully not anytime soon. I, I personally don't want to see it in my life. But it would not be surprising to me that if one day that the Christian message is so reviled, so reviled in our society, that it is accepted that churches be burned and that only messages that follow a nationalistic approach, if you will, or the, the cultural standard will be accepted. That's where I see this going. That shouldn't be a surprise. I'm not being a prophet here. I'm just following God's word, all right? This is the natural trend, right? And so we're seeing the, the, the beginnings of this now. But what we see here is that early Christians, that when they became Christians, so they're still young in the faith, they're babes in Christ, they had this zeal that even in the place, even in the face of this persecution, they were still excited for the Lord and they were enduring what was coming, but why? Well, the author says, because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So they know there is something better out there, right? Now, it is hard, even for adults. It is very hard for children, right? You take them to the store and they want a toy. Well, you can get a little toy, but if you'll wait for your birthday or for this, you might be able to get a bigger toy. I want the toy now, right? And we like as adults to think that we're better. We're not. We want it now. It's difficult to restrain ourselves, all right? It's difficult to restrain ourselves. I've been deer hunting a lot lately, 
and I have on camera a very nice buck, and I want it really bad, but I also want to shoot something when I don't see that buck, but I'm restraining myself. And folks, I believe it's the power of the Holy Spirit restraining me there, okay? But you get what I'm saying. Well, even in our Christian lives, it is, t- it is difficult to restrain because we see what the world has to offer, and sometimes we want to grasp hold of that because that would make us more comfortable. It would make us more powerful. It would make us more wealthy. It would make us more happy, whatever it might be, and we want that, but we know that there is a better possession that we are looking forward to, and that is in Christ. And so that's why these early Christians, honestly, folks, they've not been jaded yet. They are not filled with cynicism yet about the Christian life. And so many, and this is a sad thing, and I will admit that there are times when I fall in this camp where jadedness and cynicism cause us to be bitter about the Christian life. It happens, and we're going to talk about that because that's one of those valleys that we fall into. Right? And so the author here is saying, remember when you were first enlightened. Grasp onto that first love and chase after that. And then it says, so don't throw away your confidence. And this is where he says it. Which has a great reward for if you need endurance, so, for you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what, has promised, what was promised. There is a promise that comes on the heels of the gospel that we will have eternity with Christ in His presence, in His presence. And that is a great joy for us to look forward to, but it is not without, and I believe indirectly the author is acknowledging the fact that sometimes what the world has to offer or what we have to endure because of the world prevents us from seeing this glorious reward that is out there in front of us. But we just endure Wait a little while longer. That big buck is just beyond the trees. He will appear. I'm still praying, okay? But you see where we're going with this, right? So let's uh, let's just walk through this real quick. I want to talk about the zeal of new Christians, and you and you know what that's like. When when you, I remember when I was baptized. I was uh, 17, I think, 17 or I don't know. I was in, I was a late teen. Okay, when I was baptized, and um, I remember my youth minister, and at this time I believe it was manipulative, but that's another story. Um, she came up to me and she asked me. She said, "Chris," she said, "Are you saved?" And I said, "I said yes." I said, "I remember my experience that moment when I uh, confessed and repented of my sins. I was an early teen." At that time, I remember the moment when I was confronted with the gospel and that I trusted Christ as my Savior. Now, I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know what to do with that. We weren't really active in church at that time. And I just, and I didn't tell anybody because honestly, I thought it was a little weird, right? Um, as an early teen, it was just weird. And so when I, when we did begin going to church when I was in my middle to late teens, um, I was very active. And the youth leader asked me, she said, have you been saved? I said, yes. And I recounted that. And she said, have you been baptized? I said, no, I haven't. She said, why? And I said, I just haven't. I I just haven't. This is really the first church that I've been in where I've really been belonged and been involved. And I just haven't been baptized. And she said that she said, you should, because these other young people are following you and you need to set the example. Now, folks, 
that baptism is a public display of our of our conversion. It is a public display of us being salvaid, of, uh, saved, of our profession of faith. And so in one part, the baptism is a, is, a, is a visual depiction of what Christ has done in our life so that others might see that and it would be a testimony. So baptism is very, very important for that, for that fact. And so I said, you know what? I understand that. I understand that it, is an, that it is an ordinance of the church. I was 17. I did not use the word ordinance. I wish I had at that time, but I didn't. Um, but I understand that it's important in the church. And so I did. I did. And I had it planned out. I had it planned out. Like, I'm going to go up front on this day. And the reason was, is I knew I was going to be gone a few Sundays in between. Well, that, that time changed. And I was actually in church on a Sunday that I wasn't supposed to. And I was sitting there. And the time of the invitation came, you know, a real slow song, come to the altar or something like that. The pastor's waiting up front. All eyes are on the congregation, just waiting on somebody stepping out. <gasps> and I thought, well, I said I was going to go up front on this day. Well, it just, why? Why am I waiting on a specific date? I'm here. <laughs> Let's do this. So I walked front. I did the traditional Southern Baptist walk, right? Walk up the aisle. And I shared my uh, conviction in Christ. And we scheduled the date of baptism. And I was baptized. And I remember that after that moment, there was a zeal about me that I wanted to make sure. And I don't think this is a bad thing. I think this is a correct thing. I think that there was a, there was a zeal that I wanted. I wanted to read my Bible. I wanted to, I wanted to be one of those, those guys that read their Bible at least once a year. And I wanted to be one of those guys that led people in prayer. I wanted to be one of those guys that helped teach Bible school. And I wanted to, be, I wanted to do all There was just this zeal. And it, and it fit for a while. And then what happens? You kind of come down off that mountaintop, right? But here's the thing. When you are in Christ, when you are in Christ, there is never a moment to spare when you are not on that mountaintop. We need to always be seeking that mountaintop, not for an experience, not for an experience and not for public displays of affection, if you will, but just for our own relationship with Christ. We need to always be seeking after and recapturing that zeal. And when we see ourselves falling into this valley where the zeal is sleeping, uh, slipping away, it's not as if like that's not abnormal. It's very normal, or the authors wouldn't write about it in the text. But then we need to re recognize that and then chase after Christ and remember our confidence that we have in the gospel. Remember the confidence that we had in the gospel that saves right? And then chase after not. We're not chasing after an emotion. We're chasing after a person. We're chasing after that relationship with Christ and making it as real and as, and as uh, impactful in our lives as completely possible. Remember the early days after you had been enlightened. You endured hard struggle with sufferings. Folks, the only individuals who are in Christ who will be able to endure the sufferings that the Bible uh, prophesies about, that talks about, is someone that has a zeal for the Lord. A zeal for the Lord. That's the only individual. Because when your zeal is gone, and when your excitement for the Lord is gone, and your excitement for the people of Christ is gone, it is much easier to fall prey to what the world has 
And so I don't want to suffer anymore. I am sick and tired of people mocking me and taunting me for my faith. I am sick and tired of being on the wrong side of history, if you will. I put that in big quotes. All right. I am tired of all this. I just want to live my life. All right. And just muddle on through and not have to deal with that. You will never be able to withstand the punishment that will come. Remember the early days when you have been enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions. Someone that is facing that without zeal is not then going to go serve someone imprisoned for those same things. It takes, a, it takes a special infusion, if you will, that presence of the Holy Spirit that encourages us for this. So there is a zeal. Often, new Christians are going to face ridicule and taunting from unbelievers, especially as they begin to share the gospel. One of the things that, that still is in the back of my mind is that as I talk about Christ and as I share the gospel, especially with individuals that I went to high school with, what's in the back of my mind accusing me is that do these individuals think that I'm full of it because they went to high school with me? They heard how I spoke in high school. They saw how I behaved in high school. I wasn't a criminal mom and dad. But, I mean, they saw these things. They heard these things. Folks, when I was in high school, I wasn't a preacher boy. Barely a preacher boy now. But you get the idea. All right? There was no sanctification in me that somebody might recognize. And I wonder, as I proclaim Christ and I talk about my joy in Jesus, is there somebody in the back just thinking, he is so full of it. I remember when I was leading worship uh, during a funeral for my best friend, his parents asked me if I would lead the, the worship for that. And I did. And there was six or 700 people there that came in. It was a, it was a massive service. Many individuals that came in there and sat during that service. And I'm singing, and then I have an opportunity to, to share testimony and to share the gospel in a sense. And in the back of my mind, I'm sitting there thinking, there are a lot of individuals out here that think I'm just full of it. Praise God that people thought that Paul was full of it. Not you, Paul. Paul the Apostle. They thought he was full of it too. Is this the guy who was slaughtering Christians and now he's with them? He's full of it. We find that zeal and we chase after Christ. So that's the zeal of new Christian. And then there is this joyful endurance. And so one of the hallmarks of this zeal is this endurance in the face of persecution. Like I've already said, is that the only way you can endure the persecution long term, okay, long term, is to have that zeal. Now, folks, I am not talking about jumping up and down on Oprah's couch like Tom Cruise. That's not what I mean, okay? What I mean is this passion, this passion for Christ, 
this passion that you would grow in Christ and that you would know Christ and that others would know Christ, that your family would know Christ, and that whenever at all possible that your life is modeling what Jesus looks like. And when it doesn't, that you repent of that and you continue to move forward in Jesus. That's the kind of zeal I'm talking about, right? And sometimes that wanes. But when the persecution comes, the only thing that is going to keep us in there and to keep us enduring is that zeal, that passion for the Lord that the Holy Spirit provided you in the first place. If you are a Christian today and the Holy Spirit is filling you today, that is the power that we have to overcome the sin. It's not on our own behalf. It's on the behalf of the Holy Spirit. And that's where this zeal is coming from. It's not something you concoct in a laboratory or in a kitchen. It's something divine. It's something, it's something miraculous, if you will. You know these individuals, these individuals that just have a, a passion for the Lord, to serve the Lord. They're not dancing on tabletops, but man, wherever the Lord is working, they are there. Folks, that only happens with the power and the working of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. And so the persecution and the suffering, folks, it will come. It is coming. It is, it is not. Now, it may not happen in my life to the extent that it's happened to our brothers and sisters overseas. It may not happen in my son's life. But every day that we live, it is getting closer to where that persecution is going to occur. Now, folks, the church, and I said this last week, does not grow and does not expand, or historically has not grown and expand, in comfort and in peace. But the church has grown in the face of persecution. If you look abroad and look throughout history, when there have been great movements within the church and expansion in the church, it was not with Joel Olstein preaching from an air-conditioned stadium. It was from the bowels of prisons where people were accused and imprisoned for their faith. Folks, some of the greatest numbers of Christians in our world right now are in underground churches in China, in underground churches in Pakistan, in Iran, in places like that. They are being, they are being preached to and served by missionaries that you will never know. You will never know they're there because their families don't even know where they're at. They can't share that information. Because if they do, they will get slaughtered. But I guarantee you that if you go into that place, you will see a joy that is uncommon here. Uncommon. When I was in Haiti a couple years ago, we went to a church. Now, folks, I stood up here just a minute ago and I reversed the order of songs. And I paused and I giggled. And I was a little embarrassed, all right? And we moved on. But folks, we have air conditioning. We have power. We have electrified instruments. We got shoes. And I went to Haiti, and there were about 40 people in a room with no windows, barely walls, made out of clay. And they started 
singing and preaching in a language that I don't understand. And halfway through the message, the power goes out because the whole city shuts down their electric halfway through at like around six o'clock to save energy in the city. The song did not stop. The preaching did not stop. And I turned my little flashlight on my cell phone to see what was happening because here's this American white boy in Haiti looking around at these Haitians. And I'm like, oh my gosh, they were prostrate prostrate on the ground singing with their hands and face in the dirt because they were so overcome by the Lord. Tears streaming down their face. And here I am concerned, like, your all's power just went out. And you all aren't wearing shoes. Aren't you worried about calluses? No. But there's this joyful endurance, and I'm wondering whether or not we will be able to withstand that. But the author here is calling us to. And then he says, maintain your confidence. He says here, For you sympathized with prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And who is our confidence in? It's in Christ. It is in Christ. It is not in any man. It is not in in any any, uh, structure. It's not in any position. It's not in any bank account. It is in Jesus and his gospel. That is where our confidence is. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you need endurance so that you, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what has promised. Folks, he is telling them, he's saying, listen, remember when you were first enlightened. Now, I think that that is a key that some of the individuals that he's writing to all right, have either waned a little bit in their faith, have waned, and that's why he's throwing these warnings to them. He, they've waned a little bit. They might be going on these little sinful excursions in their life, if you will. And he's saying, folks, remember, endure, hold on, hold on to that confidence that you had in the gospel when you first got saved. Remember that time when you first got saved and that guy or that gal said, you are saved and Christ has come into your life. Your sins have been washed cleaner than snow, whiter than snow. You are saved. You will be with Christ for eternity. Do you remember that joy that you felt? Do you remember the relief that you have? Do you remember the motivation and the encouragement and the excitement that you had that others might know the truth of the gospel? Remember that feeling. Remember that experience because Christ has not moved. You have. See, and that's the thing. When we feel like we're in that valley and not on that mountaintop, Jesus hasn't gone anywhere. We have. We have. And so he's saying, remember the confidence that you have in the gospel. Oftentimes, I believe that it is true, and I believe that I could justify this from Scripture, that when our zeal for the Lord wanes, It is often because, whether we would admit it or not, our confidence in the gospel and in Christ to provide every bit of joy that we need 
has somewhat been subdued. Our confidence that the gospel is enough has waned. And therefore, our zeal... See, that's the thing. When our confidence in the gospel wanes, so will our zeal for the Lord. It will wane. But when Jesus is truly all we need... And when we look to Christ and say, take everything, because you're all that we need, folks, that's where the passion comes from. That's when the zeal comes from, because there's nothing else to lean on to. There is nothing else. There is nothing else. I have, um, when I'm watching mountain climbing videos or reading stories or something like this, I, you know exactly, you kind of start clenching as you're watching these things, right? Because they're like climbing these mountains and your toes curl. And the only thing holding them onto this mountain and a 5,000 foot fall is this rope and a clip that's in the wall of that rock. And then you see them and they're just kind of dangling there. Some of them are sleeping on the side of that mountain. Lunatics, folks. They're just, I wear a safety harness when I climb a tree and I'm deer hunting from a tree stand. And sometimes I pretend I'm a mountain climber. I just kind of lean forward with the weight of that strap. That's like a 15-foot fall. But still, I mean, that's 15 feet. I don't want to land. All right? I'm kind of, and I get just for a second, I get a little bit, a little bit of the picture of what those mountain climbers feel when they're climbing that mountain and they're just dangling there by the rope. Because what they say is that there is a, there's just this sense of, of, I don't even, of awe and a sense of just abandon, that you're just dangling there on the edge, right? Folks, when Christ is all you need, and you are dangling there on the edge, but Christ has you. He's the clip in the rock. He is the rock, folks. He's not just the clip. He is the rock, all right, holding you. There is a sense of encouragement and motivation and peace and joy where you believe that right now, because Christ has me, I can do anything. I'm not jumping off this building. All right. That's not what I mean. Okay. But in Christ, all right, in Christ and for God's glory, I can do anything right now. Now I'm not taking Philippians out of, out of context. All right. I'm not Steph Curry with it written on my shoe saying that if I write this on my shoe, I'm going to win the, state, the, the world championship. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, is that I have the courage and the strength to share the gospel, to live for Christ, to honor him, to glorify him. I can do anything that Christ has called me to do without any care of the world because Christ is the rock, he's the clip, he's the rope, and he's got me. That's the zeal and the passion that the author is calling us to. And he's saying, remember, because your confidence is not in the Lord. So when we are sick, Christ is still the rock. When our loved ones are sick, Christ is still the rock. When we've lost a loved one, Christ is still the rock. He will never stop being the rock. Remember, that mountain isn't moving. We move. Cling to it. Cling to it. 